What's up? It's Dave Reed from Tesla, and you're watching the Heavy Galaxy Show. show matt and john with you once again and today we're going a bit more behind the scenes of the music business as we'd like to welcome today's guest who's most well known as the founder of the very first independent metal label here in the u.s with the san francisco barrier based shrapnel records that came out back in 1980 i'd like to welcome to the show mr mike varney what's up mike thanks for coming Thank on. how are you man i'm doing great i'm glad to be here thank you so much for uh, having me yeah, absolutely, man, Mike. Well, you know, Mike, uh, Shrapnel Records, like I said, 1980, you started it. I mean, years ago now. I mean, what, 43 years old? I mean. Yeah, 1980, wow. 43 right? years ago. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, obviously, you know, Shrapnel's linked, you know, with not only heavy metal, obviously, but, of course, more specifically with guitar-driven music and shredders. And, obviously, I think the reality is that, you know, a guitar-driven music, I think, wouldn't be what we know it to be today without the advent of shrapnel back in the uh, early 80s. And we'll get to that, obviously, Thank a little you. bit. But, but, yeah, no, absolutely, man. But before shrapnel was launched, you know, I know a young Mike Varney was honing his chops here in the Bay Area punk scene in the late 70s. And, uh, you know, punk, Did of course, that? right? I mean, that was sort of the antithesis of what shrapnel obviously became with, you know, in terms of musicality and precision on guitar. Um, but so how did a guy who was ingrained, you know, in ingrained in the punk scene in the seventies, how did you wind up becoming sort of the purveyor of guitar shredding when really both of those styles were so, you know, different and, and sort of polarized with each other? Well, I was a guitar player and I listened to uh, prog rock and proto metal and fusion. And I was a record collector and uh, I saw a new thing happening with punk rock starting in about 1976 might even have been 75. And so I kept an eye on it. I had a chance to join this uh, band called The Nuns. Uh, and uh, The Nuns played with the Ramones and with the Dictators and with Blondie a couple of times and television and all those kind of seminal uh, punk bands from, from the era. And uh, But I still was a guitar player. And in The Nuns, I played bass because that's the need that they had. But I was always a guitar player, always buying heavy rock uh, since 19... 67 or something when Jimi Hendrix uh, always chased the guitar and stuff down the obscure guitar players. And, and that's what I really liked, but I had a chance to play some bass and play with these guys. And it was fun to play Winterland and the whiskey and places like that. So um, it's not that I really uh, only love punk rock. It was just one thing that I, I liked out of a whole bunch of things. And eventually when I got out of that scene, I actually started playing with three guys and a year after that, uh, they became the news behind Huey Lewis. And then I started playing with, uh, um, I get all confused at the, at the sequence of things, but I started playing in a band called the Rocky Sullivan Band with John Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service, which was a big Fillmore era band. And uh, John was on the cover of Guitar Player magazine in the uh, either late 60s, early 70s. So I started playing with him and we played eight shows with Budgie uh, at the Whiskey, which was really awesome for me being 20 years old. And then um, I got seen by Marty Ballon, who was a singer of the Jefferson Airplane and later the Starship. And uh, Marty wanted me to work with him as a guitar player on some stuff he was writing. Uh, 
that turned into me writing songs with him. So then we did the Rock Justice musical, which we wrote with Bob Heyman, who was one of the founders, and Marty and myself and a few other people. And we had Leonard and Phil from YNT as the rhythm section. And at one point we had Jeff Pilson down there, Jesse Bradman, um, John Rubin of the Rubin News, Bill Spooner of the Tubes. We had a live show at Bill Graham's Old Waldorf. So I was doing all that stuff. And then EMI signed the, the project and had an hour and a half long video with no market to uh, release it to in 1980. And that was right at the time I, I started Shrapnel. And, uh, you know, the record came out on EMI with uh, Pilsen singing. And, and uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a soundtrack album with no soundtrack, with, with no movie. So or no, it was going to be the first, I think, video made for the home market. And uh, anyway, I was already jumping into my own label by the time that got released. And uh, they, did, they got an ad with me playing guitar on the cover of Billboard, which was uh, funny considering wow. nobody ever thinks of me as a guitar player, and, and they probably shouldn't next to the people <laughs> I work with. So anyway, um, what I started, I started Shrapnel in 1980 because, you know, I was kind of, the punk thing turned into being really watered down. Uh, music uh, compared to how it started out and I always liked the proto you know metal bands the early bands like Budgie and and stuff like that so like Baltimore and all these power trios cream even Hendrix so uh, I wanted to do uh, heavy rock and there was no label in America that was doing that I had a degree in business with a kind of a minor in, in marketing and and so I realized that niche companies you know have a better chance uh, getting you know some traction out of the box than uh, trying to be a label for everyone. So I, I thought I'll just do heavy metal, and then at some point the lyrics got more and more uh, death, devil, destruction, blah blah blah. And I thought, man, I'm not really that into this stuff. Uh, from that standpoint, I love the music, so I thought I always focused on guitar. The first album I put out in 1981, which I started assembling in '80, was. U.S. metal unsung uh, guitar heroes. So they were all metal bands, uh, but they had to have a good guitar player. And that's where people like Marty Friedman came from. And, and you know, a lot of Lyle Workman was on the first album. He ended up being a major Hollywood uh, a writer for movie soundtracks and, and whatnot, including like that movie, Super Bad, but a lot of other cool stuff. And he played with Todd Rundgren and played with Frank Black, a lot of people. Anyway, he was on the first album and Derek Frigo, who was in that band, Le Mans, and then also later in Enough's Enough, he was on the first or second album, maybe the second album for him. But anyway, a lot of those guys, Michael Angelo Badio was on uh, at the second album. Uh, still a, a lot of guitar players that ended up doing stuff were on those early albums. My memory's not as good as it once was, so I just can't uh, rattle them off. Uh, but anyway, that was the deal. It was uh, heavy metal, and then with a specialization, in guitar music, so it was a niche within a niche. But um, I, I figured if people, if I if I want to hear more of that stuff because there wasn't enough of it in the market, I figured I'd find my audience, and they would be people like myself. And I lucked out. Mm -hmm. So why why did you initially then you know just give up your your music career as an artist as a guitarist, and just so focus you know just solely on the label? Well, like a lot of these stories, I met a girl. And uh, wow. I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to get married, and I wanted to be responsible. I wanted to be able to pay my bills, and a lot of my musician friends were not in that, uh, not in that situation. And so, mm -hmm. I thought, well, if I could find ten or twenty people 
that are better than I am and that are willing to go run around the country and, and play and whatnot, then I'd be better off just staying at home. And, and also as an artist, I was always disappointed with most of the people that would come around and, and give me a sales pitch about, I'll do this for you, kid. We'll do this. We'll do that. You know, a lot of them were, were just not people who lived up to what they said they were going to do. So I thought, you know, I, I would maybe find a niche within that that I could fill because I had a business degree and, 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 you know, was trying to be as straightforward as I could and I had the sensitivity of an artist. So I, I knew what I didn't want to hear as an artist and what I did want to hear. And I just, I gravitated toward that. I thought it was a job somebody had to do. And that way I could uh, maintain a relationship, get married and, and hopefully make a living. If I would have known what I ended up knowing about the business later, I probably would have been afraid to even get into it, but mm -hmm. I didn't see the barrier. So I walked right through it and uh, still married. And we're on a 42nd uh, anniversary in just a oh. couple months. So that's kind of what started it. Very cool. Well, Mike, you know, we've known each other here for a little while and uh, it's yep. so cool to be able to hear great stories. Uh, Mike Barney is full <laughs> of amazing ones. I'm not putting you on the spot necessarily. <laughs> um, so I want to first off ask before I, I am going to ask you about a story of sorts, but before that, What's the order between you guys, you and Metal Blade? Like, which was first, and was that a was that well, you felt like kindred spirits or competition, or how did you feel at that time when all this? Was oh happening? gosh, um, well, Brian Slagle is a nice guy. I mean, he he probably has to win the competition for being the coolest uh, label owner. Certainly, one of the coolest I've ever met. And when I met him. Uh, I was doing my U.S. metal albums, and he had a fanzine out of, uh, I think, Woodland Park, so, 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 some uh, some area down in the L.A. area. And he uh, worked in a music store. So, you know, he, as a writer and a magazine uh, owner of a, of a fanzine, uh, we started talking because I had a heavy metal label, and it was all at the core of his interest was heavy metal and we both just love music and so we uh, struck up a friendship and you know he was going in the same direction that I was going and never really had any competition we didn't fight over bands or uh, I can't remember ever there being any kind of an issue other than that he's just a great guy and, and he is a hard worker and, uh, and he's had a, a lot of success because yeah. of it and I'm thrilled for him so you were first or he was first? I was first, but he was better at it. <laughs> so I, I, okay. being, first okay. being, being first wasn't necessarily, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, and I was first by a matter of, you know, probably six months or a, a year at the most. So he was just, yeah. he was just yeah. right behind. He was right at the same time. Um, he was sure. we were both buying all the imports from England and checking out all these cool bands from England and into all that stuff that was happening at the moment. Right. Now one of the uh I'd say biggest impact players that you brought over that you got on your label early on later on, we'll say, was Ingve Momstein. So talk to right. us about the whole process of 
who the hell is he? <laughs> how you find out who the hell he is. And then, you know, give us a little lowdown of how it all went to get him here. And, and Well, so the ep- one of the epicenters for heavy metal in the Bay Area and even for the United States on a in the beginning was a lit record uh, store called the Record Exchange at Walnut Creek. And Bill Burkhardt was the owner and he had the coolest imports and had a bunch of uh, big selection and knew the scene really well. And so he was one of the first retailers in America to get into that whole thing. I think that Johnny C from Megaforce was also a, started out being a retailer. And uh, there were a few places around the U.S. that were considered the, the spots. And so his store uh, in the United States was the one, one of the ones at the time that was really at the forefront of this whole heavy metal scene. So I would drive over to Walnut Creek and hang out with him. And uh, one day he said, hey, this, this student from Sweden came by and gave me this demo tape of this guy, this band Rising Force. And at the time, really none of us could pronounce his name. You know, <laughs> we're thinking, is it Ying Lee? You know, what, 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 is this guy's, what is this guy's name? And uh, so anyway, he played it for me and I was blown away. But I was also like... Uh, 23 years old or something. <laughs> so it wasn't like I was in a, a situation where I thought, oh, I'm ready to bring people in from overseas now and deal with immigration and right. do all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, well, this guy's great. But I couldn't even conceive at that age of, you know, going overseas and getting somebody. And so I, I was kind of focused on being a metal detector in the United States. Uh, but then Ingve uh, sent me a, a tape directly uh, through Guitar Player Magazine. So I was writing that column on unknown guitar players every month. And he wanted to be in the column. And when he sent me more music and I had it to live with and listen to in my house, I thought, man, I got to try to get this guy over here. So uh, I remember uh, young Paul Gilbert called me. He's like 15. And I was playing Ingve over the phone and he was pretty flipped out. I was driving around with George Lynch and Don Dockin before they were uh, had a record out in the United States. And I was recommending Jeff Pilsen to them, who was been in a band with me at the time, or just a year or so before that. Anyway, I played him, George Ingve. I was playing for, for people and they were they were freaking out. And Ron Keel had a band called Steeler and he was coming up to the Bay Area to kind of go through my tapes because I was getting all these great guitar players, even Kiss. Uh, ordered one of my uh, U.S. metal unsung guitar player records when they were looking for a guitar player. So uh, Ron Keel came up and I played him some guys. He heard Ingve and he said, that's that's the guy right there. And I want that guy. So then Ron Keel had a fiance who was uh, one of the people that worked uh, in the office at the Whiskey. And also, I think that there was another, oh, it was the uh, Roxy, I think also. I think it was the same office. So she had a lot of connections. And so she knew a lot of, she knew people and had some immigration, I think attorney uh, access or whatever. And, and so we got, uh, I got in touch with Ingve and started talking to him and he was really excited about coming to America. And at the time, I didn't really understand. I mean, I was pretty young. He was coming to America to make his statement, uh, Steeler was just a vehicle. And at the time I thought, hey man, I helped put together a super group here. These guys are gonna be huge. And uh, 
Ingve was always very much his own artist and a songwriter and whatnot. And so that particular band, uh, he was mainly, uh, you know, a guitar player, a lead guitar player, but Steeler really didn't have any of the stuff that was to the core of his interest and what he wanted to do with his music. So uh, Steeler was just kind of a stepping stone for him. And uh, he obviously went out into the world and did, did really great. I just happened to be somebody who recognized it early on and invited him to come to America and get things started. But that guy works really, really hard. And, uh, you know, he's to be credited for a force to be reckoned with. He's serious talent. And a bit of a wild man. <laughs> you know, not so much around me. Uh, somewhere I've got some answering <laughs> machine tapes that would might make him blush. But, um, you know, uh, always a really nice guy, really. I mean, uh, yeah. a lot of the stuff yeah. that you would say that, that would make people mad, uh, he would just say it to get people mad. He, he liked the controversy and thought it was kind of funny. You know, one time he called me up and he said he was just interviewed by, I think, Guitar World, and they asked him what he thought of Jeff Beck, and I think he told me that he told them that he'd never heard of him. But he <laughs> thought that was so so funny because obviously how could he have never heard of him? But he knew if he said that, he'd get people going, oh, I can't believe that guy said that, you know. So he just kind of enjoyed enjoyed that, and that was part of his sense of humor also. That sounds like someone else that you knew quite well, uh, Kevin Dubrow. Uh, Kevin Dubrow was the nicest guy. I met him in 1977 out in front of the Rainbow when they, they closed down. Like at Whatever the time they closed, everybody would go out into the parking lot and just talk and hang out. And I was, I guess, 19 and we just started talking and we had a lot in common. And uh, so then I saw him, I guess, at a party at Rod Smallwood, who was Iron Maiden's manager. I uh, went to a part birthday party for him that was held by Ken Scott, who was the producer of Super Tramp and Missing Persons and Bowie and a lot of stuff. He had a party and I got invited and I ran into Debro there and he was nice as can be. And it, it's funny, it seemed like forever, but it had just been like seven years, 1977, when I met him to 1984. But he had had this huge jump, and, and the, it was on his way to having a record that would sell over 10 million units here in the States. Uh, but he was always great with me, and, and that's why we did that album uh, together uh, in 19, or sorry, in, shortly before he passed away, within two or three years, we did a record, and it was a lot of the bands that we talked about when we met on the street in Hollywood in 1977. And we recorded uh, him doing versions of, of songs by those bands. And they were my early favorite bands too, Humble Pie and stuff like that. Talk to us about Metallica. Well, uh, that was a Brian Slagle uh, find more or less. I yeah. think that Lars was known to most people in the heavy metal underground as a super fan. And he knew more about heavy metal, you know, and that in that current state as much as anybody did. And Lars even went over, as I recall, to uh, England and was uh, going to try and look up Motorhead. And I think he ended up staying with Phil Taylor, the drummer. Uh, uh, for you know overnight if not more than that and, and again there's a guy that 
that goes to England to follow his, you know, passion to get meet some heavy metal bands and whatnot, and ends up, I think, not only meeting somebody, but actually, be, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. It could have been a rumor, but I was told back in the day that he was asked to to, to stay over, and so then he started. The, he started this band, uh, and he was one of the very first guys to get really big into tape trading. And so those Metallica tapes were going all over the place and the Yngwie tapes were going all over the place too. And uh, when they came to San Francisco, uh, a, a guy by the name of Ron Quintana owned a uh, heavy metal fanzine called Metal Mania. Kind of like what Brian Slagle had been doing before he had his label down there. They had these cool underground fanzines and um, Ron Quintana was one of the first guys to write about Yngwie and he was also one of the guys that really got on the Metallica bandwagon early and helped to promote them every chance he could. And uh, so, I mean, back then they were a, a cool band. They, at the time, Lars had told me that I think that he had his eyes on um, Cliff Burton from Trauma, which is a band that ended up making a record for Shrapnel shortly after Cliff left. But I used to go see Trauma with Cliff in the band and I thought Cliff was was super. And uh, then I know that I think they had their eyes on John Bush uh, from Armored Saint. But rumor was that he had been asked and didn't do it. But I, I, that was all something I just heard. I didn't get it firsthand. So uh, anyway, yeah, the band came to my house one day and we sat around and, and talked about stuff. And uh, they were looking for a record label. And, you know, I don't know if they were seriously considering me, but we were there there. We were there to have that conversation and Lars told me the stuff that he wanted. And it was, you know, at the time for me being a, a beginning company, you know, uh, he wanted the guy that produced Judas Priest. I think it was Tom Allum. And he wanted the guy who did an album cover for some other big band. Like he, he had a vision for Metallica. Uh, and the vision was of a band that was, you know, better than where they were at the time you know they, they just sort of uh started organically and just kind of they kind of got better in front of the public's the public's eyes and uh anyway i thought they were cool and i was interested in working with them but i i had to be honest and there's no way that i could have put up that kind of money to do that now rumor has it that brian slagle probably before that uh could have done the first metallica record but I think they wanted five grand and he was just getting started. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Brian and I both started, we were starting with pretty much zero. Uh, you know, we were just, you know, doing whatever we could to become record companies. But I think that Brian had a shot early on, possibly for five grand. Now that's a, that's just a rumor, but that's, that's what I remember hearing at the time. But by the mm -hmm. time that I ended up having a meeting with them, uh, they had their sights set on a lot bigger things than that. And I don't believe that the label they went to gave them any of those things. But um, anyway, uh, what can you say? One of the biggest bands of all time and probably even talking about it probably brands me an idiot for eternity. But anyway, I'm happy they did really well. <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, the five grade thing, I believe you're spot on. Um, I did a, 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 a podcast with Bob Nalbany a few years ago with um, this guy named Pat Scott, who was friends with Lars when he first came over to the States. And he actually 
asked this guy's dad one time at dinner when he had him over for dinner as a friend. He asked his dad if he could invest five thousand dollars into his band. So oh, I think that was record. the number he was looking for. Yeah, to make the record exactly. Uh, okay. So, yeah. That's yeah, what I was told. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's legit. Obviously, the five grand thing. You know, um, Mike, I want to circle back to Ingve just for a second because, you know, when I think about when you think about the great guitarists from the seventies, you know, you think of metal guitarists like whether it's you know Jimmy Page, you know Iommi, Shanker, Richie Blackmore. I mean, those guys were always, even though they were they were known as these great guitarists, they were always in you know the bands, right? Bands. Really, I think it wasn't until probably about. I, I would say, I mean, you, you would know this obviously more than me, but I mean, I would think that Van Halen was really the catalyst when a lot of the, I think, these guitarist shredders were like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm really the band. I'm the band here, you know, and, and you know, obviously he used his namesake with Van Halen. And in the 80s, you started to see, like you would just mention about Ingve and how Ingve was, he had bigger, you know, he had his sights set on bigger things than, you know, Steeler and so forth. Um do you think when, when you started Shrapnel and you really started to, you know, obviously you had your niche with all the shredders, do you think a lot of that then sort of made this, the quote-unquote the band kind of sort of on the wayside for a lot of these, you know, big shredders and guitarists? I mean, did that kind of – because even if a lot of other guys you had later on, even like guys like John Five and, and you said Marty Friedman, he was with Hawaii, Cacophony, Megadeth, so forth – it seemed like a lot of these shredders just were like, you know, I don't need to be in a, really a band. I could just be in multiple bands. So how much was well, Shrapnel responsible for that, in your opinion? I think a lot. Um, basically, uh, bands were more difficult. You had different personalities you had to deal with. Also, bands, often there'd be one guy or two guys that weren't very good. And uh, so by... Like Ingve, before we put him, uh, introduced him to Steeler, and he agreed to do that. I wanted to do a record with Leonard Hayes from uh, YNT on drums and Billy Sheehan on bass. Billy, who was a internationally not a known guy yet, but was starting to really come out like Ingve was on guitar as a bass player. He was he was starting to really be known from touring with Talos and opening for Van Halen, and so. The idea was Leonard and Billy, and Ingve was excited about that. But then when the Steeler thing offer came, that was to be part of a band that was to live in L.A. And it came with, you know, they had a place to live. And so it, it had a lot of other benefits to Ingve. But, um, no, I, I think that I actually liked putting bands together. And I think the difference between Shrapnel and some of these other labels, to my detriment, possibly, is that I wasn't really looking so much for bands. I was just looking for talent. And once I found talent, I would then say, okay, I got a great drummer here with Dean Castronovo, obviously journey for the last 20 years, but mm-hmm. you know, he'd be great with Tony McAlpine. Okay, let's do this. Uh, let's put, you know, the first McAlpine album, uh, Dean was on the second one, but the first one was Steve Smith and Billy Sheehan recorded in 1995. So that's a guy from journey and a guy from David Lee Ross band. Those are, it's about as good as you could get back then for, for, and maybe forever. Wow, those guys are amazing. And so I started putting together lineups and like Chastain was a band that I knew a singer leather wanted to find a band for. I knew Chastain had a band and could use a singer. So I kind of just were putting people together like that in the, to the detriment of shrapnel. Uh, these bands I had put together, they would not last because they didn't happen organically. They were 
almost like test tube, you know, like, hey, this mm -hmm. is the great thing here. Let's introduce it to this over here and let's make something great. So the records were great in of themselves, but then people went back to their respective states, got back into their own lives, and the idea of ending up in the same place again wasn't necessarily a really easy task. So mm -hmm. I kind of went for the best possible musical experience I could have as a producer in the recording studio, and more so than, than, than trying to find bands. Because like I said, when I'd find bands, I'd always want to you know, replace somebody. And... Mm -hmm. That, that that was hard for me because I, as a musician, I played with really great musicians. And as a label, I wanted guys at least, I wanted guitar players that were way better than me. And I wanted musicians that were at least as good as the guys I played with. You know, Jeff Pilson being one of them and Leonard Hayes being another guy that I, I did that project with. And there were a lot of other good drummers and, 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 and bass players around uh, as well. And so... When a band would come in and have a couple of guys that weren't great, I'd immediately think about replacing them. And so it wasn't a good environment for me uh, to work in the band context as much because uh, I was just one of the best guy in the position. Like it's like fantasy football or something. Like, you know, I was in a position where I'd go, hey, let's, let, let, let's get this guy from this big band and this guy from this band. Let's put him with this guitar player. Let's get Andy. Uh, West from the Dixie Drags, who played with Steve Morse. Let's get him on bass and let's get Tommy Aldridge, you know, on drums. Let's make a record with Vinnie Moore. Those were the kinds of things that I, I like to do. I like to imagine, similar to fantasy football, what would it be like to take Tommy Aldridge and put him in a band with the bass player of the Dixie Drags and introduce Vinnie Moore? Or here's Tony McAlpine, what an amazing talent. How about what if Billy Sheehan played with Steve Smith, you know, and, uh, so that's why a lot of the bands that were on Shrapnel, uh, they didn't go as far as bands that say were on other labels uh, because the bands didn't organically uh, happen on their own. Uh, guys mm -hmm. were put in the studio to make a great record, but they had other things to do or other interests or whatnot. And the only thing I was focused on was just making the best possible record with the best possible people. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, we have some exceptions like Vicious Rumors. That was really a, ba a band. But mm -hmm. I brought Vinnie Moore into that band, and I'd hope that he would stay there and, and, and that they could become something. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, Vinnie, you know, went to pursue his own career. And uh, so a lot of these things that I put together in the studio, I had hoped that they would get legs and, and go out and, and become something. But a lot of them just were kind of relegated to be studio projects. Although we did have quite a few bands too. Right there waiting. Before I bring him on, I would like to thank this guest. He's a Las Vegas resident. He's a very good friend of mine. His name is Mike Varney. Mike Varney! I said Mike Varney! Now, this song we're playing is on the very first solo album that he and his label, Shrapnel, released for me. So I am eternally thankful for that. And I have actually never jammed with him in my life before. So today is something I'm really looking forward to. Let's bring him out right now, Mr. Mike Farney!
Now, is one of the reasons, I mean, you mentioned it before, you know, you, you were a, a business guy, right? Marketing business guy. Me and John are both that, too. But, 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 you know, being a business guy, finding your niche. Now, is one of the other reasons why you also chose to work with really the individual talents, as you were saying, was, was, did you also know that these artists, too, because they have that talent, because they were that skilled, that they were going to last a lot longer in the music business in their career than bands that were, yeah. say, these trendy punk bands, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, say, M Marty Freeman, for instance, you know? He was great, but I never really loved, you know, the bands he, that he had. I, I liked them, but I always thought he could do something better. And then I got this tape from Jason Becker, who was like 16. And I thought, God, what if Marty played with Jason? And I'm thinking, like, how cool would that be? Of course, Marty moved to San Francisco, where I lived, uh, you know, Hawaii to Maryland, I think, to San Francisco. And Marty wanted to do his own thing. So Marty didn't come into San Francisco to make a record with a 16-year-old or, as it turned out, 17-year-old guitar player. Marty came to town, uh, you know, to do his own thing. But because I recommended he go check Jason out and that I thought they could be good together, Marty went and ventured into it and, and to see what uh, that would be like just to follow up on my lead. And they really got along great and they have a fabulous friendship that's been, you know, going forever. And... Uh, and then we brought in, I think, uh, Dean Castronova for the second one. And the first one had Atma Noor, who was, uh, you know, amazing drummer. And uh, so, yeah, Cacophony, Peter Marino, what a great talent. He was in that band of Le Mans. I don't know if you ever heard Le Mans, mm -hmm. but great album on Columbia, great singer, really good songwriter. Uh, Marty was pretty much... Uh, you know, of the vocal songs, I think he was maybe one of the main guys in Cacophony. Uh, but Peter, before that, he was, you know, usually the singer and the songwriter. But in this case, he was kind of brought in uh, after there was, you know, it was the project more than it was. A, a, in other words, the band had never played anywhere or done anything before they got in the studio together. That was how mm -hmm. Cacophony came to be. But they did go out and tour. And uh, I think they went to Japan. And, and uh, I mean, one thing, too, is that I am definitely older and I've been doing this for a long time. So a lot of times I tell stories and every once in a while the detail is wrong because I've, I've heard it wrong and I've been repeating it for years or whatever. But that's <laughs> as I remember. But Cacophony was a band that was a, just for me to put cool guys together in the studio and, and make some cool music. And uh, that's kind of where that came from. So, so Mike, how does it feel when you? Because it's funny you were tell, telling me basically how, basically the whole structure and the business structure of Shrapnel was about you know getting the talent, and put them all together. There's another label that's out there right now that's doing basically the same thing, and I'm sure it's some of probably your older artists, and that's Frontiers, uh, in Italy. How do you feel about that when you see something like that? Is this something like where you're like, well, maybe? You know, that's something I could have still been doing with, with Shrapnel, or is it just sort of one of those things that you felt like it just, that ship has sailed and that you're now okay not? Because, I mean, if you look at Frontiers, they do exactly the same thing that you did with uh, with Shrapnel. I think that Frontiers uh, is a great opportunity for artists to get to make music that they might not get to make otherwise. And that's kind of what Shrapnel was at one point in time as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been 43 years since I uh, started Shrapnel, and uh, 
everyone has to decide when it's their turn to kind of step down. And, uh, you know, I, I just got to the point where the industry really isn't what it used to be. And I'm more of a fan of music. And I met John by uh, going out to uh, uh, his shows. And before John was actually putting shows on, I even first met him at uh, Triple B's in an eight machine show and he was wearing a uh, truck fighter shirt. And I went up and started talking to him because I had truck <laughs> fighters records in my collection. So oh, nice. I started off as a record collection a collector and um, from the time I was six years old and by the time I was, uh, you know, 20 years old or whatever, I probably had a couple thousand records. Uh, I just wow. wouldn't, wouldn't stop by him. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge... <laughs> Uh, collector and I love music and love getting it, you know, any way that I can. Uh, right now, I prefer uh, compact discs, but um, I just I'm as into going out and finding new bands as I ever was. Uh, back in the day, some band would come to me and I would I said to my friend Pete Morticelli, who was my partner and managing partner of uh, Magna Carta, which is a progressive rock label that I own half of with Pete. I talk about a band that, that I want to work with, and I say, yeah, the, there's a couple labels that are after him, and, and they want a little bit more money than I, I want to spend. And he'd say, well, let somebody else pay for it, and then you can just go buy the record for, you know, $15 <laughs> on CD, and you can save yourself, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. that was very wise advice. And so uh, right now I'm glad there is a Frontiers. Uh, you know, I bought piles of, of their <laughs> records, and, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty much, uh, yesterday there's a, well, there's a label called Ripple Music that John and I really like. And we're, I've been, I met the owner over 10 years ago when it was, you know, a very beginning company. Now it's a huge company in the uh, new kind of heavy rock uh, vein called Ripple. And I just bought, I think, 36 CDs from Ripple or something. And they had a huge sale. And sale always gets my attention. So I, uh, I, I I loaded up. Uh, that'll last me quite a while. Nice. Uh, you wouldn't even listen to half of them, probably. <laughs> um, you know, eventually, hopefully, all of them. But um, but initially, it's going to be hard to, to get half of them listened to. But um, a yeah. lot of them. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier how we kind of met, um, and that's funny because you know I remember that night, but I always remember. I also remember like. Who'd he say he was? <laughs> so I was like literally like talking to you and I was like, I didn't realize who you were. Like, I, I don't believe I, I, it, it wouldn't be like me to say that I do anything. I probably just talked to you about Stoner right. Rock and, and, and truck fighters. I don't think I said anything about yeah. anything about. Yeah. Well, even Dan, Dan, who I think was there as well. Didn't say, so it was, but then it was after some show at Counts Vamped. Uh, where Leah Burlington introduced us. Like, you two need well, to talk. She knew that I was going and checking out all these kind of shows. And she yeah. said, hey, you know, I think John is is inter interested in a lot of the music that you're interested in. And I said, oh, well, that's great. I'd love to find somebody like that. And then I realized that John's the guy that I met at, at that Ape Machine gig because, you know, yeah. I kind of put that together. Uh, we both did. But um, yeah, J yeah, John John, uh, John John has a huge knowledge of this music, as you know. And uh, but I got into it like in the '90s when it started. So 
I've got all this super hard to find uh, music in that genre. Um, and uh, at a certain point, you know, uh, for me, there's only so much I can keep track of. So I've got piles and piles and piles of, of releases in that vein. But John is way more on top of what's going on right now. But I still have, you know, in the hundreds of things I could pull out of my collection. And, and John would go, well, what's that? You know, well, they made one record in 1998, you know, but nobody really cares about them except the people that have the records like, like me. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting that uh, it almost feels kind of disposable. These bands kind of come in and come out, and most of the bands in this vein never have any real acclaim, uh, you know, from the general public. And so, uh, like I said, they, they come in, they, they have at it for a while, they go out there and knock their heads against the wall and maybe do some touring and go, man, there's really no way to support ourselves this way. And then they, you know, then they get out of the scene, then some other band comes in and does it. So there's there are bands at the top and John's worked with many of those. Uh, but um, a lot of my favorite bands in that genre are the ones that only made one or two CDs that are great. And um, I remember I played John that high tone son of a bitch record that had been out like 10 years. And at the time, uh, John hadn't heard of it because nobody hardly had. And then the band reformed and started making records. The next thing you know, they're playing Vegas. And so, yeah, it's just there's these great bands out there that, that unfortunately they 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 never really they never got on the radar. I mean, John's been the radar for a lot of these bands and, and helped a lot of them get, get much more known. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and you've been unbelievable, Mike, uh, in supporting, uh, you know, for a lot of folks that are metal heads that are listening to Mike Varney talk. Mike Varney is a big stoner rock, heavy psych, prog rock fan nowadays. That's it. So it's it's... Pretty amazing. You've been to like wow, like most of my shows, and uh, again, yeah. appreciate it, Mike. That's it's been just the super cool and an honor and everything else. And uh, well, you too. You know, and uh, honestly, man, those shows have really given me something uh, to get out of the house for. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't really have uh, much of a scene for that music locally, and Vamped is a great rock scene for the frontiers kind of artists um the guys i that i know from being in the business for years those those bands will come in and play vamped and which is the greatest rock club in the united states as far as i'm concerned and john has done a lot of uh, promotion of his shows in that venue too and the bands come you know from playing some rat hole in, in some place to getting on a stage like vamped uh you know uh with that kind of on stage monitors as a unheard of thing uh, for most of these clubs yeah. and uh john brings them in there and the guys the bands feel like you know like they're doing something because it, it's yeah. it's a very respectful environment for musicians and the sound is great in there it's such an amazing pro spot um and it is it's really cool to be able to give some bands you know that opportunity uh to play there we've had some great success there as well uh we packed it for a number of things, but you know, as with everything doing shows, it's uh, it's hit and miss at times, particularly in a town like ours. That's for sure. Now we talk about like what bands are you digging nowadays that you kind of are into, and you're like, Mike. Oh gosh, I mean, there's 
there's all kind of them all kinds of them um most of most of the stuff's older stuff though you know bands that made records in the 70s you know um you know given my age if i'm going to default to listening to stuff it's you know on occasion if i've got a friend over or whatever and want to revisit some of the shred stuff uh, i think that stuff is great but you know as a as a fan um you know i guess it, it's the music that i grew up with that, that's the stuff that really sticks with me so it's the it's the heavy the heavy power trios like uh or bands like maybe like incredible hog or gun or uh they actually was a band called iron maiden before the iron maiden that everyone knows uh and they were english and they made a cool record and rise above reissued it rise above obviously is the label that brought uncle asset i think right and they came over to metal blade i think through uh through rise above rise above did like uh, orange goblin like you know rise above has been this great label but they also have a uh a uh, division that does reissues and they've reissued a lot of really cool old stuff from from the 70s that 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 i've either had on vinyl or been aware of or but a lot of times it's with bonus tracks and stuff what, yeah what? it's called rise above relic relic oh mm -hmm. yeah oh, yeah it's a big label what what are the current bands mike come on give us a few you've seen or <laughs> heard that are nowadays because i know you like some stuff and you've seen bands live yeah, and like of course well, nowadays, I, I mean I, I i definitely like um i mean i've known parker griggs for a long time now so and you have too so i definitely like radio moscow and i like el Perro. uh i think parker's kind of a a new guitar hero for the psychedelic uh, revolution uh it's coming back uh, in, in a very underground way but he is big on that i really like that band fever dog that that, that you've had uh to vamped and that we've seen other places um i think that they're a lot of fun they're kind of like the sweet uh or yeah just like a heavy guitar rock 70s sort of band with a little bit of a glam edge to it um yeah. Yeah, there's just, there's just a lot there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good a lot of good heavy rock bands, but as far as like I mean, Orange Goblin, obviously, are a cool band. I mean, there's a lot of okay. I mean, there's just there's thousands of them. I don't even know where to even start. There's a band with a really <laughs> weird name called Rainbows Are Free. Rainbows Are Free, but I think that's yeah. a cool band. It's cool. Um, yep. And I've been buying their CDs for well over ten years. And, uh, you know, they, they got reissued on Heavy Psych uh, Sounds uh, or, or came out with another record on there. But I've been into them for a long, long, long time. Uh, and even that band that was uh, turned into the Watchers, it was uh, post... Uh, Spiral Arms? What is the name? Say it Spiral again? Arms. Spiral, Spiral Arms. Spiral Arms. Yeah. yeah, Spiral Arms. I mean, they, they've got a few really cool CDs. Yeah. And okay. a couple, one at least is really almost impossible to find in it. I was buying those when they first came out. Like, just a lot of stuff like that. There's just a lot of really good heavy rock bands. I mean, I, I've got a kick out of Salem's Band whenever I see them. I think they're fun. Um, good band. Uh, I love Mucho uh, from Great Electric Quest and Buddy the Donner and, and all those guys. Uh, that's a cool. That's a cool band. Uh, Mucho's now left, but um, let me think. I mean, uh, Slow Season. I think that's a good one. I mean, there's just an there's a band called a uh, stew. I think that's on, is that on ripple? I think right? is that on uh, ripple, one right? al I think they released one album by him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's kind I, of a like, lesser known uh, one of uh, Sweden. 
I like that band Age of Man. You know, mm-hmm. that band Age of Man, I think they're on, yep. uh, I'm trying to think what label they're on. Anyway, I, I like that band. And then I like that band um, Child from Australia. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's some yeah. unbelievable bluesy rock stuff right there. Yeah. yeah, so I guess a lot of the stuff that I like is based on the records that I bought when I was growing up, which is the stuff that came out of the 70s. Just because I'm older and I'm, I've, you know, I've kind of reverted back to a lot of that music. But I've been buying a lot of heavy metal stuff, too. I mean, I love all the old classic stuff. The stuff from the new, new uh, wave of British heavy metal, uh, I, I collect all those bands pretty much and, and like those bands, like Raven, stuff like that. Some really good bands from back then I really like. And there's been some retro bands that have come out that are kind of like that, that are cool. Uh, you yeah. know, bands that are influenced by by the early '80s uh, rock. Yeah, well, and I noticed some of these the the bands in the in the stoner scene are starting to have a little bit of that new wave of British heavy metal. Uh, they 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 yeah. they're putting that piece into some of bands like Duel, uh, that band uh, Danova that just yeah. came on TP, their new record. So I'm you're starting to see a, a lot of that now seep into the heavy rock scene, which I think is great. I think that's super cool. Well, it's Duel evolved out of Scorpion Child, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's an Austin, Texas band. Yeah, th- th- yeah I think that great. band is cool. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah like great two-guitar action, uh, for sure, Yeah, about that band. I, I yeah. love the good dueling guitar action. That's always a, a lot of, uh, I don't know, for some of us, that's just something really cool to watch. I know you love to check out everything going on that stage. You don't want to well, talk like, to like, anyone. Yeah, like, <laughs> Like red, 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 yeah, redstone souls. Uh, they got good two guitar action going yeah. on. I'm not sure what they're doing, but they're out of Detroit. That's a really cool band, I think. Um, John had them at, at, at Desert Rock. Desert, uh, Desert Rock. Um, yeah, I mean, John's had some great bands in town, and I, I and some of the sometimes it's crowded, and sometimes it's you know not crowded, and it's <laughs> it, 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 it's painful to contemplate what would be going on in a promoter's head when they're you know watching a show that they've been looking forward yeah. to seeing for two months unfold with you know 25 people you know paid or whatever it's it, that it's was that was one of the last shows so i haven't done a show since last year other than planet desert rock that's all by kind of by device at this point in time but yeah i think we had like 20 25 for I think it was high tone, son of a bitch, even. So that was uh, one of those points where you great. were like, well, we're going to enjoy the. And it was a great show, two guitar action again. That one guy's an amazing. Sh- I mean, both of them shred, but one guy was just on fire. But uh, yeah, we win some, we lose some. I'm pretty happy now. Uh, you know, there's a couple other promoters here, and I just help them out when I can on their own shows. I mean, that elder. Ruby the Hatchet, uh, Hell Giant show was outstanding. Yeah, I mean that could have been your show. I mean, it, you know, pretty much their bands you you you, you might have booked in another, another era or another time. Uh, yeah. I thought Ruby the Hatchet. I, I've been buying their records. I think that I like yeah. the organ and the, the re- heavy reverb. They're, they're definitely going for a '70s sort of a proggy, uh, you know, kind of heavy rock sound. And then uh, it's interesting is Elder kind of has gone more into like a UK sort of festival, uh, jammy sounding sort of thing. Although it's all very arranged, it, it, it's it's sort of trancey and, and sort of 
it goes off in almost Osbrick tentacles or, you know, explosions in the sky or, 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 or like, a, I don't know, it's a cross between like a heavy rock band and, and like a kind of a space rock sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that they're doing as well as they're doing. They had a big crowd in Vegas and that was supposedly not that big a crowd for them. So I was yeah. happy to hear that. I've been following them since their very first, you know, records. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, great band, great band. Um, Mike, I just want to, you know, fast forward now to today. You know, I mean, vinyl's back, popular as it's been in years. Uh, I know you did some reissues for Shrapnel on CD about ten years ago, as well, especially one album you mentioned earlier, which I think is a great record that you put up back in the day. That's Scratch and Scream from Trauma. Um, I yeah. interviewed Chris this last year, and they're doing great now. I mean, better than ever. I mean, they're just told with Queensryche. Um, yeah. I, w- I would I would assume that there'd be a big market, you know, for a lot of releases on shrapnel, especially with the vinyl, um, that people would definitely be interested. Is that ever something that you thought of maybe doing? I know well, you said you're a CD yeah, guy. I'll tell but you this. You I reissued a handful of things. I reissued a handful of things around 2010. I mean, I, I didn't sell hardly anything. And so that's why Quid Rea showed up because it just, there weren't... <laughs> just there wasn't much of a demand for it uh, now maybe with vinyl uh maybe it's different and i can tell you this that the orchard which is you know 100 owned by sony um they have been licensing um some of my titles to various labels i know tribunal die bomb uh you know that that record label that they've reissued some shrapnel stuff there's a label over in europe it might be jolly roger i can't remember the name of it they've reissued some uh something i think uh chastain stuff's been getting reissued um there i i heard something about a possible trauma reissue but i don't know if that, that's uh, still a topic or not uh, i did talk to chris uh, recently after they got off with marty friedman and uh queen bright saying that chris uh, gustafson and I talked recently, and he was quite excited about uh, the tour they did with Marty Friedman and Queensryche. And uh, I think that happened organically. I know a lot of bands are forced to pay to get onto good tours, but mm-hmm. I believe that they were invited, and uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, and it's great because you know everyone just remembers Trauma as the band that Cliff Burton was in, but he wasn't even on you know that album or any other albums really so no, i'm glad that they're starting to get a little bit of notoriety for that record because it's a great record it really is uh mike uh overton was the uh, original guitar player one of the original guitar players and uh he uh you know wrote a lot of those songs uh, when i used to see the band with with cliff burton in the band when i really started to admire them um they were playing a lot of those, some of those same songs. So uh, some of the songs were from back in that era. And I think we did their record in, might've been 85, 84, 85. And uh, it had just been, you know, a few short years when they were together, you know, playing with Cliff. Yeah. And then sadly, I guess it was in, 80, did Cliff die in 86? When was that? 86, I believe, yes. Yeah, that was just a horrible thing. Yeah. Um, nice guy and, and very talented, very distinctive. I mean, he really stuck out. When I went to see Trauma, I thought, wow, that guy's cool. But I thought they were all pretty cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, I got, I got one last question for me, a, a hypothetical question here. 
um, obviously, like I said, you're, you're a label, you know, honcher. You've been doing it for years. Like you said, you've got other labels you're involved with. You mentioned before Magna Carta. You also, um, were, um, I know, a partnership in Tone Center as well as Blues uh, Bureau Records. I, if, if, if you were going to start a label today, if you had, you know, if you wanted to, if you were going to, if you had the means to do whatever it is, if it was something you really wanted to do, hypothetically, what would you focus on musically? I mean, would you do re-releases like most labels are doing? Focus on the nostalgia because nostalgia really is really what's selling the most right now. Old music is outpacing new music by a mile. Or are, are there, would you be maybe involved in a specific genre of metal or heavy rock or something? What would you do, hypothetically, if, if you were to start a label? Like well, you know, I, I've enjoyed uh, 43 years of since the beginning of shrapnel and you know i think i like being a fan i like going out to gigs and not having anything to do with anything and just being able to sit back and listen to music <laughs> like i could do when i was you know a teenager and, and like most people do now it's nice to not have to worry about something going wrong or you know anything but just being able to have a good time and so yeah i thought about uh, starting a uh, a label for this genre they call stoner rock, which is it's it's a it's a it's a bad name for a, a good good art form because yeah. um, you know it, it conjures up all kinds of things that might not even really pertain to some of the people, but it's just it's yeah. a genre. But I thought about doing those kinds of records because you know I was always finding all of this stuff and talking to other people, and they'd say, oh, "I don't know what he thought. What is that band?" Uh, I've been encouraging John Gist to be the guy to do it. Uh, <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, whatever, whatever you need to know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you some ideas, yeah. but I do think there's definitely, uh, you know, money left on the table in this, in this genre here. And I think it could be exploited and distributed, uh, differently. Um, I admire anybody who's doing it and I think that they're great. Uh, for doing it, uh, but I also think that there's uh, room for someone else to uh, to get in there and 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 make a meaningful contribution as a label. And uh, yeah, I I just think there's the, the the interesting thing is that like people's expectations are so low. I was trying to help a band get a deal, and I contacted some of the biggest labels where I know the owners or the presidents. And I contacted them on behalf of the band and they would then send the thing down to other people at the company and they'd come back and go, yeah, the band's good, but you know, they've only got, you know, 50,000 followers on Twitter. So, uh, you know, we're looking at bands that, you know, are doing more than that, or they're not touring enough. And I'd say, well, God, they two or three, four months out of the year. Well, the dates aren't big enough that they're doing. In other words, yeah. the, it, it, it's strange, but it seems like a lot of the heavy lifting has to be done by the bands now. And um, oh, yeah. that's just kind of the way that it is. And unfortunately, they don't get a whole lot of help. And uh, it's just kind of a, it's sad. So like this band, I, I thought I was going to be able to maybe get them a real record deal. And I have actually helped a couple of artists to get deals in the last couple of years. So it's, it works sometimes. But um, anyway, uh, I, I, I tried. And um, I just think that... Uh, I, the band finally said, we got a deal. We got a deal. Finally. I said, well, what did you get? Uh, 100 LPs and 100 CDs. I said, wow. yeah, but what kind of deal? I said, what kind of deal did you get? What do you mean? I mean, what, what's your royalty? 
what royalty? Wow. I mean, what would you get? Uh, did they pay for your recording costs? No. So wait a minute. You paid to record your own album? Yeah. And you're not getting a royalty? No. And you got what? A hundred units? No, a hundred of each. Oh, well, that's great. I don't know what to say. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's just it's just the way things are, and I, I guess mm -hmm. there's just must not be that much money in it from the label standpoint. Uh, but you know, having artists that are appreciative for what a label would do, uh, you know, that wasn't always the case. You know, uh, a lot of times you know, <laughs> artists would look at a label and think, well, if you can sell X amount of units with me, I wonder how I do with a bigger company. But like. Unfortunately, those kind of dreams are, are, are lost on a lot of these newer bands. They don't have any thought of anybody getting behind them or putting any muscle into them. And they still go out there and they still go play these shows. And sometimes they're a thousand miles away from home and they're getting paid $300. And so it's, it's the passion that these musicians have and the fact that they're willing to go out there and, and, and in such a meager, uh, you know, existence to, to get from one gig to the next, uh, if I can go out there and buy some, like the other day, I bought three Elder CDs. Might have already had one or two of them. I don't know. I just, I just wanted to do something and, and buy something. And John knows almost every show I'll try to go and buy some kind of uh, merchandise yeah. or whatever. But I don't know. I just think there's, I think there's a way that 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 somebody can come in like John and and have a meaningful contribution <laughs> and, and makes and make some money. Uh, yeah. But you know, I've come from the glory days of the record industry. It's not yeah. not from. Uh, I'm kidding when I say glory days, but I mean it, when when things were a lot different. Right. All right, Mike, you've talked me into it. I'll I'll do a record label with you. You're right. You're, yeah. I'll, I'll do it. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, me and Varney. Uh, yeah. It'll be Varney. I don't think I don't I don't think I'll be doing that. But you know, I'm producing artists. <laughs> yeah. I've got an artist called I've got an artist called Jason Walker that John has been helping the champion this guy is an amazing guitar player and amazing singer both oh, so he's a double threat if you saw him just singing in a band you'd walk away going who's that guy and if you saw him just play guitar you'd walk away going who's that guy but when you hear him doing both it's pretty impressive so we finished a record we've got nick oliveri from queens on uh, about five or six tracks on it and we have um uh, Mucho uh, from the Great Electric Quest uh, and Gygax, uh, now of El Perro with Parker. Uh, we have him on drums. Uh, it's a cool record. Don't know when it's going to come out yet, but uh, it's really, really cool sounding. I'm working with Stoney Curtis uh, on a new uh, heavy blues, uh, psychedelic, uh, heavy rock uh, record, and also going to be working with Danny Coker from... Uh, the TV show uh, Counting Cars with his band and Stoney Curtis's band, uh, Count 77. They got a bunch of cool guys in that group and they sound great. Going to be uh, hopefully starting something with them and another artist has asked me to do something with them. So I seem to be in the studio a lot, but um, uh, a lot of times it's just, um, I'm just kind of helping out. It's just uh, a little bit different role than I had before as the label owner. And, and you know what's interesting is, the, and now you got a little thing going on over at the Copa Room. I find that one right. is an interesting project or situation. Well, you know, uh, Ryan Mancuso has this cool room over there adjacent to the bootlegger, and it's got a major sound system in there, and he's set up to uh, 
stream and uh, and record audio and and video. And uh, so we have Pat Travers come out for the first one. Now we have kind of a Dio Rainbow, uh, mostly Dio Sabbath, uh, you know, show uh, c coming up. It's uh, you know just sort of the music of Rainbow. Black Sabbath and Dio, and it's all, all phases of, of, of all, all those bands, I think. We still haven't figured it all out. Uh, I'm just helping put some of it together. Uh, Ron, it's his, was his baby, and he's uh, put uh, some of the show together. So if I have some ideas, I just go back to the board there, and I throw them out there, and, and if they like them, we, we do them, and if not, we, we find somebody else for the slot, but we're all four of us, Alice Goldstein and her friend Drew Zellakins, we're all working uh, together on this stuff. It's fun. And you're a hell of a recruiter to get <laughs> the musicians to get involved. It's it, it's one of my favorite parts of living in Vegas, quite frankly, uh, Mike, is is being able to see and, and watch some of that kind of action also. The uniqueness of this kind of uh, situation is really cool. This is a cool place to live from a standpoint of music. And uh, it's hard after being here to want to live anywhere else. It's, it's just every, every, most of the great artists that I've worked with that are still active, that they come through town and they play here. And that wasn't happening in Nevada, California, I can tell you that much. Um, yeah. I mean, living in the Bay Area, I'm sure Matt, you know, uh, had to drive into the city and, and park in some, you know, ratty area in the mission or whatever, yep. to go, see some, oh, yeah. to go see some cool band. And it's really, unfortunately uh, here, it's not like that. It's uh, we've got some really oh, yeah. good we're, venues. Pardon yeah. me, we're really lucky with Counts Vamped. Uh, I, yes. I can't sing the praises enough of how I awesome the sound that place is just such a good sound. Yeah, know? Danny and Corey are great people, and they, they, they're they doing what they love. That's a labor of love, that club, and, and I appreciate them for it. Yeah, and, and they're being nice enough that I'm going to be able to do a couple of my days for Planet Desert Rock. Four in January, uh, I think it's 25th through 28th. So, a couple of the dates uh, over there at Vamped again. So, I'm super honored to be able to do this it. Is, this is in 24, huh? Um, what? Yes, sir. What? What? What bands? Okay. Still working on some of the details, and that it, it'll be likely 14 bands max. 15 if I decide to go a little bigger on on. Uh, Saturday night, but Saturday, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be cool. It'll be selective. <laughs> we'll say, right on. And, and maybe hopefully a couple bands from overseas. Uh, you know, I, I got a commitment to someone from overseas, but I just want to tie up those loose ends and just, you know, cause I know it's not easy to commit. It's, yeah. well, I you know, when we, when we do God. these kind of things. Oh, thank you, Mike. I, I just don't know why we don't have more people here that will pay to go see shows. I think everybody here is people out in the middle of, of the United States. They're grateful to get anything they can come in there. And if they have to pay a little bit to see a show, they'll do it. But I think a lot of people here are kind of spoiled. It, it's There's so much free, so great entertainment here. So, um, much. so much. So that, that's what kind of makes it hard. It, it's on one hand, a really great place. Uh, for music, but on the other hand, if you're promoting it, it, it's hard to actually get people to come out and play because a lot of times they got two or three options to go do stuff that's free. So, many, so much. It, it is. It's crazy options. You know, it's funny as a, a band that all three of us know of and like, 
uh, High Desert Queen. They're over right now in uh, Europe, and they just did like four or five, maybe six dates in England or UK. Wow. And uh, now they're to Italy for at least two or three, and then Germany for a whole Germany for a whole bunch. So what was the and, what was the last time? What was the last time they were here? Uh, they came from Planet Desert Rock three this year at the usual place with Salem's Bend and right. Nebula. Yeah, and Sonic. Right. That was a great yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. You got to see Rusty. Who I told Rusty yeah. Miller, the guitarist of High Desert Queen, I go, Do you know who Mike Varney is? He goes, oh, I'm a guitarist of Go for it. Of course I do. That's what he said. And well, I'm like, All right, well, he'll be watching you tonight. And <laughs> no pressure. And he's like, Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think cool. I ever did it. I thought I, I thought I was going to meet him, but I didn't end up meeting him, did I? No, I, I told him, I go, dude, you got to come over to the table. You got to hang out with us a little bit. You got to introduce, and it, you know, everything's just happening. You know, that was just one of those love festivals that people were just from what, station what, to what, station. You know, was that his daughter on bass in that band? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So they're in yeah, Europe cool. for 34 dates in 36 days. Wow. wow. Fatso Jetson for about half of them. Mario Lolly and the Rubber Snake Charmers for the other half. Um, and you know, they're going to be playing smaller towns, quite frankly. I mean, I mean, sure, they played London. They played London for Desert Fest London. Um, you know, where they played Leeds and all these other cities and stuff in england and i've seen the tour thing and it's not always big cities you know it's not like they're playing when they go to italy i don't think they're playing rome or florence which is you know or milan even so that the unique thing is is in europe you know there's support it could be in the middle of the week it doesn't matter people want to hear live music um rock and roll is is at least still alive it hasn't been Kick to the curb, like in the states, you know, for rap and hip hop. And, I guess. Let me ask Matt a question, Matt. What are your favorite bands in the, in this scene? And this scene, I mean, so much, you know, like I, like I said, the High Desert Queen, I love. I mean, this band Warlong, I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, uh, the guy. It's like when you get put on the spot. There's a ton of them. Uh, let's see. Just the top of my head, like I said, a big fan of Duel. Witch Skull. Uh, I love yeah, Witch Skull, Atomic Bitchwax, obviously old school bands like Orange Goblin. Um, I mean, I, I like, you know, I like a lot of them, you know what I mean? Um, just the whole scene. I always tell John too, what's great about, I loved about the scene is that, um, you know, and I, I've been in other scenes. I've had a label, I've worked in like, uh, metal and hardcore labels and stuff I had one time. And, and it's just, the scene's great because the people are just real, they're chill. They're down to earth. They're humble. I, they're hungry just for, you know, not hungry in terms of they want their band to be huge, but they just want to get out and play and yeah. just interact with people. It just really comes from a very, I think, genuine perspective where a lot of these bands and musicians are coming yes. from. You know, and even just people that are like John, you know, people who were putting on shows, promoters, label owners, you know, I mean, it's just everyone just seems real. They're just happy to keep this thing going, you know, and I think that's the most important thing. You any, know? Any, any any interest in you and doing a, uh, a label in this genre? I, I actually, I, I've, I have been thinking about it. So you, you might be seeing, um, I, you know, I'm doing a label again. I, I, I'm with you. I do enjoy not having to worry about <laughs> working and just sitting here enjoying the bands. Cause you know, I hit the thing about being a label. I didn't like, and I'm sure some you didn't is cause you know, you're, you always looked at as the money guy. You're the guy with the money. 
And so even though you you know you make friends and so forth, when things maybe aren't going the way they might not like it, then it all comes back to you, as you know. Like, where's are you, yeah. you know, who's the next album, or why are we getting more support, or you know, all that stuff. So that's the part that kind of got me soured on owning the label. So if I did do it, there would be more not how I did it last time. I would probably do more like like you were saying about that band with the hundred you know, vinyl and hundred CDs. It'd be something pretty simple. You know, not not anything to do with a lot of royalties and all that kind of mishmash. Uh, you know, it's uh, but I definitely have uh, been thinking very heavily about getting back into it. Hey, John, so. John's willing to have people call him a jerk. And there you go, John. You like he, he likes both. Oh no, <laughs> where'd you go, Mike? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> what did he say? He was going to say that you know you're you're the guy that doesn't mind being the jerk. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, he's back. Uh, sorry oh, about that. I said, I said John doesn't mind people calling him a jerk. He could be your partner. There you go. That's, we might have to start uh, Heavy Galaxy Records. You know, you never know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, at least we know we would get promoted. <laughs> like a lot of labels. True. Uh, true. Yeah, me being called a jerk. Yeah, I, I played the the good guy and the bad guy. My my whole career, uh, you know, right. I, I managed people, uh, marketing departments for big companies for a while, built teams and, you know, that if you want a bad guy, Matt. Yeah. But you always got to have a guy that's, that, well, why do you think I, we do a show together? Exactly. You know? I'm more of a, you know, I, I, I'd like to be more of the charismatic figure. Uh, <laughs> you got to work on that. You got to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still working on that, but that's what I'd like to, you got to have goals, Mike. You gotta have goals. Okay, well, I, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I do think that. There, yeah, it's a good place to start. I, I think there's an opportunity for someone to really get put a label together, make it small boutiquey, very selective, and put everything into it. If you think it's actually good band, yeah. and and less, less have a budget, have a fucking budget. Like, have a budget for marketing, promoting that's higher than what you normally do. Because what you normally do, uh, the, you know, isn't enough in some of these cases. And, you know, I, there's some bands that if more people heard them, there'd be a lot more people involved with our I our agree. Scene. I agree. And that's a big I problem. We're, we're, we're just um, like three breakout bands away from having a real scene. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I mean, I, would, yeah. I, mean, I tell people... I mean, I tell people like Jesus, you know, it, it's part of the family and that's rival sons. You know, it, it took them like eight or nine years to break out, even though when you go back and listen to their music, it's top quality, hard, heavy rock, blues based influence stuff. I mean, I'll It'll never forget. The I was at the, sh I was the sh at a show uh, at the old joint with them and STP. And for some unknown reason, it was booked the same night as the cult. Now, some people might scratch the was so what? For for people who really like just good hard heavy rock, that was a conundrum. That was fucked up because both those bands appealed to us. I knew people who went to cult that wanted to go to Rival Sons and vice versa. But I'll never forget looking over and uh and, and we were hanging out for a lot of the night with Stony Curtis. Just loved the rival rival song. Just was like, yeah. this is one of the best bands. And I think when you see them live, you know, for you folks that are listening that like metal or you know, Stone Rock, 
Seeing them live, you you actually see what a rock band can look like nowadays. And dress yeah. the part, play the part, look the part, act the part. And and they're not kids, but they make up for it in in you know pizzazz. They make up for it with with amazing songs, and uh, they make up for it with style. Quite frankly, the guitarist is a one of a kind in the way. He, he does things, and that's the roots of rock and roll, and that's the roots of our scene. It's more polished, it's it's, but it, it's next level because they are next level. <laughs> but there's hope out there. Out. What's that? They had a giveaway with um, uh, Mojo Magazine, or one of those, or Classic Rock Magazine. One of those, they made a CD giveaway, and I think I, I think I got involved like back then, as far as like buying stuff by them, and I believe. I believe the singer had like an acoustic sort of project before that. I think somebody actually sent that to me back in 2003 or something. Um, if, if the guy's from Arizona, I don't know if you know where he's from, but if, if so, then I think, I think maybe I, uh, maybe Change I heard him in a, in a whole other context before. Anyway, guys, thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. And, uh, um, thank you, Mike. Nice to be remembered. Good to be remembered. Oh, I mean, <laughs> you deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were, you were, uh, like I said, first metal label of all time in the United States. So, how can people not forget, you know, remember you? Let's put it that way. And so, created well, his own a, brand. A, yes. Of, of it's a you know, microscopic shredder. footnote in history. Thank you, well, guys. Not to us. Maybe it's maybe the mainstream people, but not the underground people. We all know, you know. Yeah. So, Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for coming on, man. Really, really Thanks, good guys. And if we do start the label, we'll be we'll be uh, contacted you. Yeah, for feel free to ask me. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what not to do for sure. I don't know if I know That's, what to do. I don't know if I ever figured that out, but I know what. I don't not think to anyone do. knows that, right? Everyone's always yeah. about what not to do, know what to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we cool. should have a conversation. Yeah, All right, absolutely. Guys. Yeah. All right, Mike. Thanks. Thank you again. Appreciate it.